Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 502 with Oren Claff. Oren is sharing how to successfully pitch things, yourself, your products, your services, and how to persuade those around you. So you'll learn, one, what most people get wrong about persuasion, two, how to communicate your worth, and three, the surefire way to convince anyone. So if you'd like to take a glance at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep502, or you can just tap the link in most podcast app players within the episode notes or description to get there all the faster. Now here's Oren's story. Oren is Director of Capital Markets at Investment Bank Intersection Capital, where he manages its capital raising program for retail and wholesale distribution, business and product development. Oren co-developed and oversees Intersection Capital's flagship product, Velocity. From 2003 to 2008, as he applied his pioneering approaches to raising capital and incorporating neuroscience into the capital markets programs, Oren raised over $400 million of investor capital from high net worth individuals and financial institutions. Oren is a member of Geyser Holdings Investment Committee, where he has been a principal since 2006. During its growth, he was responsible for sales, marketing, branding, product development, and business development. Previously, he was a venture analyst and partner at several mid-sized investment funds. Big thanks to Oren for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Oren. Oren, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, I appreciate that, Pete. What a great radio voice you have. I'm going to try and equal that with uh, tone and tenor and pace, <laughs> but I might lose it at some point. I tend to lose it when I get excited. Well, I'm excited to be talking, and I also hear you're excited about fountain pens. You got 17. What's the story here? Oh, I'm way up from that now. I actually have a safe, which I have to keep my fountain pens in because I bought a couple that are super expensive and they have to be on lockdown. I, I just love, so I have a five-year-old and I write him a note every night. So maybe when I die and maybe somebody really can take it out and go, hey, you know, Orin passed this way. So I love the feeling of ink. It's analog. You know, it's analog. Everything's so digital. And that's what I want to talk to you about today a little bit. Everything is so digital. People are losing the way of the sword, they're losing the way of the pen, they're losing the way of language. I know nobody thinks that's true, but it is happening. Well, I, I'm excited to dig into it. So can you orient us quickly to Pitch Anything and your latest Flip the Script? Yeah, Pitch Anything really started with the realization of this. People, especially in business, but in life in general, 
They want what they can't have. They chase that which moves away from them. And they only value that which they pay for. And so Pitch Anything was really about this notion of how information gets into the human brain, what the brain does with it. And it's extremely counterintuitive. In fact, it works the opposite of how you might think, right? So you go, you want to get a raise or you want to impress a client and you do all these things that should be recognized, but uh, maybe it's like a court of law and a murder trial. No good deed goes unpunished. And so Pitch Anything was really about how do we get things done in an upside down world where you go to a client and you say, hey, we're going to try really hard. We're going to work really hard. We're going to give you a good price. We'll be the best supplier uh, that you've ever had. You'll be, you'll be our most important customer. The customer is always right here. We're excited to have you on board. All things are true, transparent, you're passionate about. But none of that is persuasive. And so how do you walk that fine line of wanting something wanting to perform a task or a job or, or an assignment, wanting to get paid for it and, and wanting to commit to it and show that you're good at it at the same time showing that you don't want it and you don't need it. So, so ultimately, I think if you had to put a subtext or a subtitle on this, it's this neediness kills deals. And that's what Pitch Anything was all about, how to want something and not want it at the same time. Well, you know, that's really intriguing, and it really reminds me of sort of the, the notion of playing hard to get in the, the romantic courting world. And so it sounds like you're on board. That's a winning strategy. Yeah. So in the romantic world, is a very narrow range of activities in terms of playing hard to get. When you go into business, playing hard to get is very nuanced, can backfire, and especially when the stakes get higher. And so as the stakes go up, and somebody needs to talk to you, then need to understand what's happening both inside you and in that situation. So it's a lot more complex and nuanced than plain hard to get. Okay. Well, and so before we dig into the particulars of, of how we, we walk this fine line and execute that well, I'd love it if you could frame things up a bit in terms of saying, why is, is this skill super important? If, if you're a career person who's like, you know what, I'm not going to march into a VC's office and, and, and do a pitch, but I'd like to be more persuasive. Why is it so important for us? And, and why are most of us not so great at it? It's a great question. You know, I think I wrote Pitch Anything some years ago because basically I saw tens of thousands of people in my work just going in and supplicating to buyers, right? Supplicating. What a word. <laughs> it's like they're on their knees and yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's supplicating is maybe it rhymes with sucking up, but really it's if, if you unpack it, it's confusion about who's the prize in, in a business interaction, right? So there's a prize to be won and we go in as an employee or an executive or a salesperson. And this is why it's important. We go in and the current framing in our economy is that the boss or the customer is the prize, their signature they're giving us a raise, they're giving us resources, they're giving us a contract, they're just giving us money is the prize to be won. So we have to perform at some level, performance. And I, I do believe like we view our pitches as a performance. So even though I'm against this framing, I still, you know, use it that, that we have to perform 
for the prize of the money or the contract, right? And that's, I mean, wouldn't you agree that's basically the standard framing in business today? Oh, sure. I guess, and I'm thinking about all kinds of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or, you know, sort of big moments like the, the sales person needs to wow with exceptional, impressive, persuasive power, like what an all, a rock star. Yeah. So we come in and we, even if we're a rock star, right, we are trying to win the prize of the contract. So pitch anything really made it important to understand that they're not the prize. What can they give you? Money, some status, right? These are commodities. You can get status anywhere, but you can get money anywhere. So like money is the ultimate commodity. You should not do things that are outside your value system, do things that you're overreaching. You should not overextend yourself. You should not supplicate, you know, which I think we decided was really a euphemism for, for sucking up in order to win a commodity for yourself, money. Yeah. You know what? That, that just checks out in my gut. Like, all right. Yeah. Right on. You know? Okay. Sounds good, Oren. <laughs> right. But let's go. Let, so if they're not the prize, and the money isn't the prize, and their signature and their approval isn't the prize. And that's really the key word, approval. Most presentations are based on approval-seeking behavior. When you're seeking approval from someone else, you're supplicating to them, you're needy. Neediness kills deals. On their side, people want what they can't have. You're letting them know they can have you. And so it's all wired backwards. The thing that's important is to wire it up correctly, which is that you are the prize that they need. And so how do you come in? And everybody has to decide this for yourself. I can give you a couple ways and give you a head start, but how do you come in and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm gonna show you a couple things over the next 12, 15 minutes, I'm gonna pitch you the big idea. I'll do that very quickly. And it's important for you to evaluate it and see if you're gonna get what you want and if our circles overlap and if it makes sense and if we're aligned. But as much as you're evaluating me, it's important for you to know I'm also evaluating you. Lots of options, but I don't know if I'm smart, or if I'm just busy or lucky this time of year, but there's lots of things that are pulling on me and lots of customers want us to deliver. And so I'm just in a good place to be choosy about what I work on, who I work with, and why I'm doing things. So as much as you're evaluating me, I'm evaluating you. Now, probably people listening to this right now going, oh my God, I would never say that to my boss or the board of directors. I think when I get that reaction from people, they're saying, I would never say it in that tone. Now, the good news is I say it in that tone every day, but I'm experienced at it, right? And it's in, within my value systems, within my personality, and it's part of my performance. Now, you might not say that in those words, but you can communicate the same things very nicely, very subtly, in a nuanced way, but say the exact same thing. That is the problem is coming in and letting the buyer or the boss or the you know the peer or the colleague or the situation know that they have higher status and more value that you do and that you are willing to work exceedingly hard need the deal even though you don't right you're willing to demonstrate to them that they're the prize that you're trying to win and that is ultimately what makes deals fall apart, be hard to win, or go sideways. So that's really the challenges that are happening every day. And you say, well, how can I be the most valuable person at the table? They have the money, they have the contract, they have the company. I believe for most people, again, the buyer, 
just has a contract and money. The corporation just has a job. The colleagues just have the ability to jump in with you. What you have is the most important thing. And people should be trying to win that. You know, it's your experience, your integrity, your ideas, your know-how, your relationships, your willingness to invest, your commitment, your thoroughness, uh, your, your value system, your I don't stop when I'm tired mentality, uh, the, the joy and ease of working with you. That is incredible. You can't buy that. There's no amount of money you can pay for those intangibles. And if you have that, then you're the most invaluable person in that relationship, in that meeting, on that call, in that deal. Well, and I think fundamental to that is that, you know, it's true. Like, like the core fundamental value that you're bringing to the table is, is significant. And, and you really are not sort of a commodity in terms of, you know, if it's either your, yourself as a professional in, in terms of your, your skill set and what you're offering there, you are kind of don't have much special sauce and hopefully everyone does. If you're listening to the show that I think that you, the starting point is, is having it in terms of you've got something special and you can feel good and secure and confident in that offer. Yeah. And so how to do that is really, you know, the question that's not off putting, that's not confusing. And that really moves into what flip the script was about. So pitch anything showed you that these things were possible, that people were doing these in high stakes situations. You know, it's funny. I say this word high stakes, but I, I didn't really have a, you know, cause high stakes is different for, for everybody. Like, like Pete, what would be a high stakes meeting or a high stakes deal for you? Well, I think in, for maybe more so for the listeners, high stakes might be, I want the promotion. I want the raise. Yeah. And so, you know, and is it really high stakes? Cause you're going to ask for it. They're not going to fire you for asking. Right. So it feels high stakes. And, and when I think about things feeling like, uh, we, uh, by the, what part of the country are you in? Chicago, Chicago. Okay. I'm in San Diego. Have you ever been to, to San Diego? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever been to Coronado, but there's this, the Coronado bridge and it's, it's crazy. It's not like a normal bridge. It's, it's, it's a span that like rises up into the clouds and it, it goes over the military base and it goes over battleships. It's just, it's just huge. Uh, and I was driving over, uh, two weeks ago, I was driving over it with my family in the car. I have a little boy and, uh, my wife, myself. And I look out and there's this pretty small retaining wall, concrete retaining wall. At least it looks small to me. I'm driving over this bridge you know, seeming like miles over the Pacific Ocean, like battleships look small, you know, you know, beneath us, like Lego toys. And I'm not going to hit the retaining wall. We're driving 65 miles an hour. If they took that retaining wall away, then all of a sudden, you know, I was never going to drive off the bridge in the first place or hit the retaining wall or get anywhere near it. The stakes go way up, right? And I would slow down to three miles an hour or two miles an hour. And so... When we get into situations and we feel like it's so important to get this done and we don't have a blueprint or the path to follow, we revert to behaviors that are so the equivalent of slowing down to three miles an hour, being exceedingly cautious, being exceedingly tentative, being exceedingly careful. That's what happens when the stakes go up. If you don't know what to do to maintain the language and the framing and the conversation and the confidence and the skills that you would have, you know, if, if the stakes were $3 and it didn't matter. It, so it's not necessarily that you don't know how to do these things, is that you don't know how to do these things when it really matters because your intuition is working against you. I think the classic example is going to a meeting you know, to talk about a raise or a project and the guy you're going to meet with 
is running late, right? I mean, this, right. this has to be something you've encountered. Everybody's, you know, encountered it. Sure. And so he's two minutes late. He's four minutes late. He's eight minutes late. He's, you know, the secretary comes in or texts you, hey, sorry, you know, be there in a few. And now it's like 15 minutes late. What do you do? Well, I mean, I'm not pleased. It's not fun. I hopefully have something else that's kind of productive and worthwhile I can do. And, and not uh, I, at that point, I'm starting to wonder if it's going to kind of encroach, you know, the other stuff that I've got scheduled. So I guess you, you either reschedule or you hang out. I, I, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, well, this is kind of a beta trap, right? It's equivalent of if you're a salesman, you're, you know, you, you drive across town or fly to another city, you go to a company for a 10 a.m. meeting, you're going up to the counter. And you're saying, hey, you know, is John, is John ready? Oh, you know, he'll be out in a few. And it's a beta trap, right? Because there's beta and alpha. Alphas don't have these problems, right? The president of a company, the president of a bank, hey, you know, maybe they do it at a different level, but people come to meetings on time. So you're stuck in the beta position, which is a status position. One thing I can assure you from the low status position, you can do hardly anything. People don't listen to you. They don't take you seriously. They see you in a very superficial way. And more importantly, they have high risk-taking behaviors when they believe they are higher status than you and they're the alpha and you're the beta. So there's not a wrong or right that it's eight minutes, 15 minutes, one minute, three minutes. It is that if you accept the beta position and leave them in the alpha position, they'll have status over you and it is incredibly difficult to get their attention and be persuasive from the low status position. So you have to signal, hey, I'm a peer, we are colleagues, we're at the same status, and that we need to be in alignment. Right? So in those cases, I would always recommend you say, hey, look, you know, I set aside about an hour for this. It looks like we're chiseling down to 45, 40 minutes, probably not enough time to accomplish what we want to accomplish. Let's reset and find another time to do this. I've got some key projects that I need to focus on. The easiest way to take yourself out of the beta is using the moral authority frame, the moral authority frame. And moral authority is always about work, right? If it's about work and it's about delivering and it's about taking care of your team and about taking care of your customers, you'll always be in the right. So for example, I work with a lot of guys that are very high status, very wealthy, running large companies, and you know, and they always come late. It's not that they're rude or they're malevolent or they're trying to you know get their alpha status over me, right? It's just they're running a seven hundred person company. I, uh, two weeks ago, I talked to a guy, hopefully be a client of ours, you know, running a seven hundred fifty million dollar company. You know, he comes to the call at ten o six, and it's a ten o'clock call. First thing I'll say is, "Hey, John, you here for the ten o six call?" And it's great. <laughs> and, you know, they always laugh at it. And the first thing out of their mouth is sorry, right? Like they know because you're calling them out on professional behavior in a fun, light way. And they always say sorry. And, you know, and usually they say something like, you know, hey, we had 72 containers, you know, stuck in Hong Kong because of the protests. You know, I had to sign off on some extra expenses to get them out. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't deliver diapers to, uh, you know, the area of the world that's really needed and it's a charitable effort. So really sorry, but I, yeah, no problem, right? But at least you're not saying, hey, hey, starting off, hey, Mr. CEO, hey, Mr. Big, no problem. You show up anytime you want. I'll just sit here and wait mm -hmm. and uh, whatever's good for you is good for me. So, I'm, you know, I'm very lighthearted and I go, hey, you know, you're here for the 1006 call. And then I'll say, hey, why don't we get caught up? 
seems like you still got a couple people joining. We're recording the call. They can listen to the recording and catch up. Let's get started. We're super busy. I carved out like half an hour and we're eating into it. Here's what I suggest. We get started. I've prepared a presentation. It's 12, 13 minutes. Let's go through it. So I've said that and I've taught that to audiences. You can say, you know, I say that very naturally and I'll always get somebody raise their hands and they go, I can never say that. Especially, you know, women raise their hand like, oh, that's good for you. Alpha male. You know, women can't talk like that. And I always say, you're listening to my tone. You're not listening to the messaging because you can say that so nicely. Oh, hey, John, glad you could make it. You know, I was almost thinking that we should reset this call. We've got, you know, maybe like 28 minutes left and a lot to do. If you guys are ready to roll, I think we should start now because, uh, you know, I've got about 15 minute presentation. Then I want to give you some time to really, you know, make your case. Right. And so, mm-hmm. so that's that it's the same messaging in a totally different uh, tonality and pace and level of flowerness, but it's the same messaging. I, my time is as important, maybe more important than yours, because we're solving this very hard to solve problem for clients and we're busy doing it, right? Yeah, I understand some, some of the, your use cases are internal, but you have even more power internal. Hey, you know, I said about half an hour for this meeting, want to discuss some of the recent projects. You know, I'm running my team. They count on me. We're delivering a huge project. Currently, we're on time. But if I'm missing from it, we could slip. And, you know, nobody likes to slip. I really want to prioritize the work I'm doing. If we get started now in the meeting, I think there's enough time for me to cover, uh, you know, what I came. To. And then you can reflect on, uh, you know, how you think it ties into the expectations we set six months ago. And if we have five or ten minutes left, which I believe we will, I want to talk to you about some career things that are going on with me and you should be able to give an easy yes, no, maybe. So if that sounds good, let's kick that off. But what I wanted to say is, although people are afraid of saying things even that direct, the reality is it signals you're not needy. It signals that you are not a beta, that you have as much status as the buyer, you know, or the other side of the meeting. So those are all critical right? It signals you're a professional. And when I start a meeting like that, people put their iPhones down, they close their laptops and they go, aha, finally, I'm in the hands of a professional that knows how to run a meeting. This thing is not going to go on for two hours. There is a clear agenda and it's not called the agenda. It's called, Mm -hmm. this is how I like to have meetings with my peers. Let's rock and roll. I love this. Yeah, yeah, I dig that. And and you're right in terms of if there's many ways you could communicate that message to see what style and tone feels right to you. But the, the core message is there that, that we are peers. And, and I've often recommended to to folks I'm, I'm prepping for interviews that if the person who's doing the interview isn't really sort of paying attention to you, this does happen. Like they are on their computer, they're doing email, they're on their phone and they're elsewhere. I'd say, I think your best bet as the candidate there is to just pause or say, just let me know when you're ready or something to the effect of, you convey the message that I am unwilling to be ignored and and made sort of in the background as you do something else, you know? And, and you could say that kindly in <laughs> any number of ways. Right. So I think any number of ways except for a number of ways that are that are so so I get this question a lot like hey should I ask somebody to put their phone down or put their laptop down I can tell you in the meetings that I go to in the presentations that I have nobody is on their phone or on their laptop what they are doing 
is engaged in the presentation or in the meeting because there are stakes. There are things that are going to happen and it's clear. Either I'm going to go away with my toys, my marbles and go somewhere else, or they're going to have the opportunity to use the things I know, the experience I have to solve their problems. And that the decision on go forwards or go away is going to be made today. And that decision has stakes and is meaningful. And when there's high stakes for the other side, not just for you, then the phones go away and the laptops close and they pay attention, right? One of the key tenants in Pitch Anything is that the span of human attention is 18 minutes. And that's why we work really hard to get everything in to a compact period of time. Now, I go to meetings where people spend 12 minutes trying to get rapport, talk about, you know, family and sports and weather. And this is all stuff that ultimately, you know, the fact that you like hockey and they like hockey is mildly helpful for alignment. But this is not 12 minutes of conversation for 18 minutes of attention, right? Nobody increases your pay by 40%. Nobody assigns you a million dollar contract. Nobody pushes you up to the board of directors for a presentation because you like hockey and they also like hockey. It is relatedness and is helpful, but this old world of like seeking rapport, it's not the old boys network anywhere where people do business because they like you and they're, they, they're affiliated due to some organization, right? It is not the determinant. The determinant is what status are you? What value do you provide? Are you an expert? Have you solved this problem before? Can you take pain away? And are the things you're saying about the future, what's going to happen in the future, really going to happen? That's why people decide in your favor, not because you like hockey. Well, so understood there. So you're coming in with something legit to start with. You got great fundamentals and then you are not apologetic and, and supplicative as you are entering and you are conveying the message that, that we're equal peers. I am a professional. I know how to run this meeting and here's how it's going to go. And, and, and sort of navigating to that 18 minutes. So, so let's talk about within that time frame, what are, are the critical things you want to, to convey? And maybe you could even give us a, a demo in terms of someone who had a pitch that was floundering and then we, we turned it around to have 18 minutes of excellence. Yeah, maybe, maybe I can. I think about my, my new book, Flip the Script, is really about solving the next level of questions. Once you get clarity that you're high status that in the dominance hierarchy, you know, of monkeys, you are a equivalent monkey, right? Sort of as simple as that. Then how does somebody know that you're an expert in either the project you're proposing in the next level, right? Cause, cause people want to pay more for your job or give you a raise because you're able to take on more responsibility and solve different, more difficult problems. Are you a car guy, by the way, Pete? Yeah, I have not owned a car for 13 years. Oh my God. So you are a expatriate <laughs> car guy. <laughs> Interesting. So you have to give people certainty that the things you're saying will happen, really will happen in the future. And how do most people try and give certainty? They tell, they go, these are the projects I've done. This is the commitment I have. This is the area I'm familiar with. I know lots of people have this problem. I've worked on this. So it's telling, telling, telling. Well, before you turned in your car, what kind of car was it? It was a 1989 Chevrolet Celebrity. So, okay. Yes. You, you are officially the most not car guy 
that I have ever <laughs> talked to. But it's good. It's good for this example. So um, that was not really a great car, right? No, it, it shook when it went, you know, you upwards of, yeah. of 70 miles per hour. I got a speeding ticket when I when I drove my mom's car, and that excuse didn't really hold with the police officer. I'm used to the car shaking when I'm going too fast. It's starting to shake, and you hear a noise, right? And so you go, oh, man, that's not safe. So you, you take it down to a local garage. You definitely don't want to take it to the dealer. That's not the So you take it out of a local garage, and the guy looks at it, and he goes, yeah, you know, something's wrong here. I'll tell you what, uh, leave it here. It's two hundred dollars. We'll take a look at it. We'll call you, uh, you know, tomorrow and uh, tell you what we think the problem is. And if you decide to get it repaired here, we'll credit the two hundred dollars to the bill, right? And that's the offer. You go, hmm. I, you know, to me, I hear that and go, I'm not certain that my problem is going to be solved. Yeah. Right. Uh, so you go, eh, it sounds good, you know, niceties, and you move on down the road, and you go to, you know, Eric Schmidt's repair shop, and you go in, and he's and he, he you, you pull in, and he comes out, and he's nicely branded, and his name tags is Eric, and he, he's got a correct amount of tattoos up his left arm and a hipster mustache. And <laughs> he comes out, and you say, yeah, I don't know, it's shaking. And so he goes, press on the accelerator, and goes, Rrr! you know, it makes the noise and the squeak. And he goes, listen, here's the deal. This Chevrolet celebrity was, there was a fire at the fact, the GM factory in uh, 1988 when this model was built. So they had to move them over to Dearborn where they started manufacturing, which was fine and well, except they didn't correctly put out the, the right throw out bearings. This thing actually needs a 27-4-O-C throw out bearing. You can see a little bit of oil leaking here. That's a 27-C oil leak. It's not even the right oil in it. That's going to start to wobble, be a 7,000 problem. But I can hear from the squeak, they put the 17-109 fan belt on it. The 17-109-5C is a correct fan belt. You know, we see so many of these. We keep about 50 of those fan belts in the back and the throwout bearings. Leave it here. It's 500 bucks. Come pick it up tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. It'll be ready. Much more compelling, absolutely. You, you've you shared that you know what you're doing. I think it is, yeah, you have shown I have solved this problem a million times before. This is boring for me. I can do this no problem. But but really, showing, problem solving, 501c fan bells, you know, everything, it's all about certainty. So flip the script shows you those formulas or the scripts getting away from the old scripts that are no longer functioning, right? Which is get rapport with someone, give them the features of the ideas, explain the benefits, suggest the stretch benefits or the pro forma, do a trial close. So what do you think? Is this something we can do? Go ahead with all the objections come out, right? Trying to overcome the objections. Well, you know, we're not really doing promotions this time of year. We usually do in March. September is not a great time. And then trying to close and get stuck in, hey, send me a proposal. That old system, features, benefits, trial close, stretch benefits, objections, overcoming objections, close, is just no longer functioning. That was designed in the 1950s when, when buyers really had much fewer options and much less control of the process. So... Uh, or, or employers had many fewer options in terms of, um, you know, talent acquisition. So, so th those scripts are no longer credible. How do you give people certainty that the things you say will happen in the future really will happen and is worth paying me today for something that's going to happen in the future? And that is, it's not a naturally occurring skill set because when humans develop conversation and, you know, not to go into caveman tech, but Language was not designed to propose a pay raise in the uh, supply chain management industry, right? 
<laughs> language was designed to communicate danger among humans in fast-moving situations. Mm -hmm. And so that's very easy. You don't need to study or go to a course or do any training on, hey, there's a fire over there, right? It's moving this way. Run or you're going to die. Don't eat those berries. The last three people that ate them got sick and one of them died, right? Oh, uh, you know, so language is very effective. There are pre-wired pathways to communicate information about danger and risk and conflict. Information about supply chain management software is not pre-wired in the human mind. You have to think about it. And a lot of it can be counterintuitive. And much of that is, you say, getting them to think it's their own idea. How is that done? Yeah. So how it's done is laid out in eight chapters in the book, right? So it's, it's, it's pretty sequential. So I don't want to read the book, but I think more importantly is, can it be done, right? Can you put ideas in someone's head, marinate them, percolate them, have them, you know, go around without you overtly saying, so what do you think? And, and I give you an example. This happens us over and over. We had a client in over the weekend, you know, that shows how, how high stakes it is, you know, for me to come in on a Sunday, open up the business. We met for an hour and a half. And we sort of wrap up and we're packing our stuff up into our briefcases. And I say to the guy, the best clothes that I have. Now, remember, I'm maybe the number one sales trainer. And the best clothes I have is, uh, hey, John, uh, so what do we do to get this thing signed up? Right? <laughs> because yeah. we use Inception. We don't rely on closing or we don't argue with our clients on why they should do business with us. We put the ideas in their mind and we allow them to come through their own process to the notion that they want to work with us. Right. And uh, so I say, you know, what, what do we got to do to get this signed up or what, uh, you know, I almost sound confused, which I'm not confused at all, but I'm not going to close the guy, you know, try and get him in a, a sales headlock. And he says, oh, I signed it an hour ago. It's over there on the edge of the, I signed the contract an hour ago. It's over there on the edge of the conference table. <laughs> and so I go, oh, thanks. You know, and they leave. So this, but I can give you example after example after example of this happening over and over again. And that's inception. When you correctly show someone that you're a peer to them, you are not lower than them. You're not less important. You're not trying to win them. That what you have is valuable, that they are fortunate to be able to have an option to convince you to provide your services to them when you provide them certainty that the things you say will happen really will happen them when you show them that you have values that can't be changed by their language or the request for discounts or their needs that you have you stick to your guns that you have unassailable values when you show them how to buy from you and when you authentically create time constraints in which you will just doesn't work for you anymore and you're fatigued, then you'll leave. And so many, when you put all those things together professionally at a high level in a way that's not overtly visible to them, and they just feel like they're talking to some wonderful people who are very skilled, who are passionate about what they do, have real values, and have solved their kind of problem a million times before, they just go, this is awesome. How do we get going? And that's inception. Lovely. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? There's a book I really like called Riveted, sort of a, a by a guy named Jim Davies. Mm -hmm. And he's an academic, but it's quite accessible. So I like that. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Oh, boy. So here's the one 
that I love that I think is, and you know, maybe everybody knows about it. They, in New York, they test it over and over again. They dress up a guy in very high status business uh, clothing and over and over again, they, they line him up at a crosswalk. And when it's red, this tall, handsome, well manicured in a beautiful suit that's well fitted, you know, uh, uh, terrific shoes and a great smile. And, uh, you know, in his forties guy starts walking across the road and everybody else follows him. Right. They do the same thing with a construction worker or somebody looks shabby or somebody, you know, eating a falafel and slovenly and people don't as much follow. So status, it shows that people follow and respect and get behind people of high status in all kinds of situations. So, so to me, that's the number one thing that makes life easy for you in, you know, upgrading your work life and making more money for your family is establishing either appearance or messaging or positions or framing or or morality around status and getting people to go your way much more easily than if you had to convince them using logic. Okay. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you a lot? The biggest thing that I have is when I say people only value that which they pay for. Most people who've been in business for more than a day <laughs> understand that lesson. No good deed goes unpunished. People only value that which they pay for. The more you try and give your service away, the less likely you are to close the deal. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Oh, that's great. So I'll guide you to Amazon to buy uh, Flip the Script. But if you like the sound of what I'm saying, you can hop over to orangeclaff.com and enter. I'm running a contest now to fly someone out to California, put them up on the beach here in a hotel for two nights, and then I'll work with them on their business to use these principles to to advance their own career. So that's at orenclaff.com. And we didn't really promote it that much. So I think my mom has entered and maybe two other people. So your chances of winning are pretty high. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? A hundred percent. Start using this statement. Oh, so you're here for the 1005 meeting. It's fun. You'll get a laugh, but it'll establish your t- The first time you'll be afraid to use it. But when people smile and laugh and giggle and, and give you credit, that's my first challenge to you is start using that and defend your value in the equation of a business meeting. You're going to love using that. All right, Oren, thanks so much and good luck in all your pitches. Hey, Pete, I really appreciate that. Great questions. Uh, it's been fun. I think for me, the huge takeaway from Oren was just that notion that you are really persuaded and convinced when you have complete confidence that the person on the other side has a full knowledge and totally knows how and will, in fact, deliver what they say they will deliver. And they know their stuff. They've solved the problem a thousand times. And there you go. Like that car mechanic example. I I was facing that a little bit recently when I was trying to get some people to check out our roof because it seems like it's getting near the end of its useful life. It's time for replacement. And I've talked to six different roofing people now. And it's pretty frustrating because I don't know much about roofing. And some of them seem to have a whole lot of knowledge. And I really appreciate that. And others didn't even come by, but they gave me a, a quote. And they said, oh yeah, we've got aerial photography from a satellite which shows us the square footage of your roof. Now, 
That's pretty impressive. I didn't know that that existed. So in a way, that's pretty cool. You got my attention. I'm intrigued. Like, oh man, high tech. All right. Cutting edge. Intriguing. Tell me more. But then they don't know all the sorts of things that's going on with the brickwork and the masonry near there, which can make all the difference when it comes to water intrusion, as I've come to learn. And so I I don't have a whole lot of faith when they say, oh yeah, we're just going to put a ceiling. Oh, we're just going to add another layer. Oh, we're going to have to tear it all off. I really want to hear the story that yes, they have done dozens, hundreds, thousands of roofs over their roofing career. They understand the particular needs of my roof and why it may or may not need vents in a particular situation or why the masonry needs to come first, etc. So that's really what's, what struck me with regard to who I've ended up selecting because of the confidence they instilled based upon the stuff they knew and what I was able to check out about them. One company said, you know, we don't do anything at all with social media. We don't have any reviews anywhere. And, and really customers like our old school way of doing business. And I mean, maybe, maybe some people do, but that kind of felt to me like a, a bit of a flimsy excuse in terms of, of why they don't have their stuff there. And, and I guess I just wanted to see the proof in terms of some kind of a statistic or award or tons of people I could call that said, yes, they were the most amazing roofers I've ever experienced in all of my years of dealing with many roofers. I, I don't know. I wasn't really convinced. So with Oren, I think that just helped provide a great framework in terms of, all right, this is why I went with someone is because they gave me complete debt or confidence that they can absolutely solve this problem for me and why I didn't go with someone else. And so in turn, think about what would be the most compelling evidence you could provide that shares that, yes, I really can solve this problem for you. Yes, I really am up for the challenge. And then do that and you'll have a a world of success in your persuasion. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F502. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, I'll catch our next guest. It's Stu Hynek. He's a Wall Street Journal cartoonist, and he has some expert tactics on how to get a meeting with anyone. Hope to catch you there. In peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.